Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Many thanks for joining us today on The Lob, a These Football Times production. For more of our content, check out our award-winning print magazine featuring some of the game's foremost writers, artists and photographers exploring areas of the game rarely covered in high-end print. For now, we look forward to you joining us again soon. Hi, and welcome to the final edition of of Series 2 of The Political Football, a podcast series from These Football Times. Football is a global phenomenon. People who follow it can fall into an obsessive mindset where victory or defeat for their national or club team can define their lives, attitudes and understanding of the world around them, both locally and globally. Over time and in so many places around the world, though, the game's ability to intoxicate and elicit unquestioned devotion to a cause has often been manipulated by states, parties, other political organisations or indeed individuals that seek a way to persuade, influence and increase power by using football as a political tool. This series looks at examples of such scenarios, considers their context, cause and effect, and how the game has been used by such political forces, and also questions whether at times footballs kick back or provide a means to counter them. This is the political football, and today we'll be taking a slightly different tack. We'll be looking at European academies and questioning whether they are exploitative of African talent. I'm Gary Thacker, and I'm delighted to be co-hosting this series with my good friend, Stu Horsfield. How are you doing, Steve? Hi, Gary. You OK? Yeah, quite looking forward to this. Yeah, so it's a slightly different tact as mentioned from the usual approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like you said, I'm looking. It, it it is slightly different, but obviously, I'm sure as well as we'll go along. I'm sure there'll be plenty of um, political intrigue as we go along, as as there always seems to be. Yeah, definitely. So who's our guest today, mate? So our guest today is Ryan Huttle. Uh, Ryan is an American soccer coach and a a future law student, which might be good depending on what we say and don't say, um, from Chicago (laughs) with a particular interest um, in tonight's subject, obviously. um, And that's obviously thanks to his academic background. Yeah, how are you all doing? Welcome on board. Thanks for having me. You okay? You okay, Ryan? Yeah, excited Excellent. to talk about this. Good, yeah, me too. That's great. Um, I mean, Roy was with us uh, uh, in the first series, but uh, it's great to have him back on board and look at a totally different subject. And uh, these, uh, the European Academy is with, uh, looking at African talent. Um, so tell us a little bit about the political top context and what you consider to be the main issues around uh, around football with regard to the um, how European Academies approach uh, developing African talent. Yeah, I mean... I think that it's pretty much impossible to look at any facet of modern African life without kind of talking about or acknowledging the background of European intervention and exploitation on the continent. Um, So I think what we're seeing now is just kind of maybe another, um, we're seeing these sort of colonial overtones still sticking around in African football. Yeah. Okay. So it seems like what you're certain is that European or the first world countries with academies or sort of like asset stripping like they did with perhaps the um, the raw materials of the of the continent previously and exploited for financial gain and that's a cont- 
continuing form of colonialism. Is that sort of the, the, the uh, approach you're trying to put forward? Exactly. It's pretty much developing Europe as part of the same process in which Africa is underdeveloped. Right. Stu? Yeah, uh, like I say, it, it's going to be interesting this one because I'm, I'm assuming as we go along, we're gonna we're gonna be chatting about you know whether or not you know, African football you know is in a position to and like I say, I don't I don't mean to say the wrong thing, but you know, is it going to be essential for the for the development of these young African footballers, whereby it's actually an inevitable process, or whether or not you know were these talented um, young footballers allowed to stay would there be more investment in African football would we see more success on a global scale of African football and thereby reducing this necessity to to lose even potential talent um, at such a young age yeah I mean that's pretty much the heart of this that's pretty much the heart of this issue so it's it's definitely not an easy topic to really get into and I think that's why it's something that hasn't been talked a lot about yeah I guess it's it's that there's a there's a thin line it depends which uh, it often depends which side of that line you stand on when you decide whether it's a matter of exploitation or it's a matter of development and uh, you know without first world academies and the clubs would African football talents football talents have the chance to be as prosperous and as successful as it is I mean I'm not talking about the clubs I'm talking about individual players who and uh, we can all name you know, off the top of my head, a dozen or so top uh, international players who've come from uh, from uh, from Africa but developed through European academies. So, as, as I say, it's, it's probably a case that it um, depends which side of the line you, you stand on, whether you consider it's exploitation or development. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that, Ryan? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah, once again, there's this fine line that you have to kind of tread upon but at the same time it's not so much the individual development of these players as kind of the structural systems that we put in that are in place in africa to develop these players so right now maybe what we have in you know, we have young players from other regions of the world i mean in the u.s we have tyler adams and he was developed for the goal of winning mls cup i mean australia daniel arzani's a league player of the season Loretto martinez and racing I mean, all of these players were developed for the sole purpose of enriching their clubs. And true. what we have in, and do we have that in Africa? And for me, I don't think we do. Yeah, that's true. So, what's your political, uh, particular interest in this? Uh, Stu mentioned about uh, uh, your academic uh, work. So, what is your particular interest in this? You know, I, I studied a lot of uh, African history when I was in college, but it's just kind of. It's just such an interesting topic that I don't have, like, maybe it's so much of a personal um, background in it. It's just such, it's really, it's fascinating to me to kind of read about and talk about. Yeah. Okay, Stu? Yeah, it, like we say, it's, it's going to be a difficult one, this one, because... Because, like we say, we're sort of torn between this this necessity in terms of you know if we're going to give these these young footballers you know a chance to become the very best that they can be, in in terms of in terms of how it works then, Ryan, because obviously you know you're gonna you're gonna probably certainly know better than me. Obviously, I can't speak for Gary, but in mm -hmm. terms of you know you talk about this 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 exploitation. But I mean, you know, can you sort of give us any examples whereby you know maybe players have gone before they should have got, you know, is it a case of players being taken almost too young, do you think, or is it a, a European or first world countries waiting until they see real signs of potential before they go across and, you know, and bring the player back to their club? How does it, how is it actually 
operating from your perspective? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's obviously different in all these individual cases, but what the, the major fact is in Africa, the average age for a player transfer abroad is 19. And that's by far the lowest out of any other continent. So I know it's kind of like an often racist stereotype to describe African players as raw, but a lot of the time the truth isn't that they're exactly raw in any pseudoscientific claims, but they're just really raw in the development process. They're still growing up. I mean, these are 19-year-old kids that are brought in from a continent to a new place where they often have, I mean, they literally have no idea what anything is like there. Yeah. There's always been, I remember from my sort of uh, economic studies that there's always a difference between development of and development in. Um, in African countries, well, African countries, but still a lot of third world countries that are ex-colonial uh, countries, and it sounds like this is a bit, uh, a good example of that, and perhaps uh, the the academies are just another example of uneven development by the post-colonial powers. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so let's let's have a sort of a, a move it on a little bit, and. Uh, Let's let's explore some. As Stu said, some examples, and uh, you know, I mentioned we've got uh, any any football fan of any of, of uh, almost across the world in any of the major um, footballing countries will have knowledge of, of uh, uh, exceptional African footballs. Perhaps someone like let's give me an example. I'm a Chelsea fan, so Didier Drogba was the first guy that comes to my mind, and I know he sort of was uh, taken from. Um, he moved from uh, Cote d'Ivoire to France because of family issues, and that wasn't an exploitation. By the, he didn't move there because of the academy, but the academy he, he started playing with did develop him from there. So perhaps there is a beneficial uh, effect to them in some cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that there definitely are. It can be beneficial for some players. I mean. Yeah, it's like I mean I don't know how much you know about like the charter school argument in the U.S., but. It's pretty That's much cool. like we're going to bring in, we're going to make a few player, we're going to improve a few players, a, f a few students, whatever. We're going to make this kind of a way out. Um, and yeah, it's going to improve a few, but unless you change the actual structure, you're not really doing anything. Yeah. You're just showcasing these examples as look how much we're doing, look how much we're helping. Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the posting of the exceptional rather than the general. Exactly. Yeah. Stu? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but in terms of, obviously, we're looking at it from a very Eurocentric perspective here, but in terms of, from an African perspective, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, and again, I don't mean to stereotype, but, you know, I'm assuming there's a real drive for young African footballers to be brought across to um, to European clubs and to some of the big clubs but in terms of the in terms of the African clubs is it is it for them a needs must in order to survive or is there a real drive by maybe the, you know the African clubs to try and protect these younger players to try and protect this asset stripping like you say I mean at 19 years old it's they're only just adults so you know is there a you know within Africa and within African clubs or African FAs or even the you know the, the Continental Federation you know is there a, a drive to protect their assets or is it very much a no you know we need to we need to move these players on if our club is to survive if we can facilitate a fee or monetary compensation you know to help our club develop i'm just interested on the on the african perspective of what we're talking about 
Yeah, and it's not really one I can speak to, but I, it, there definitely are so many structural problems in place within African football where the ownership is sometimes a little suspect. I mean, there's a lot of things that FIFA is not doing to um, kind of just give African football a stable base to build off of. So this is why these players have to be sold at a young age. And this is why, I mean, a lot of these academies and teams, they have groups of private investors that are funding them. And just compared to academies all across the world, that doesn't happen. But the only reason that's able to happen is because there's not really this ground base and FIFA isn't doing enough for the African domestic game. So these investors are able to come in and do a lot and sell these players for nothing. So, so do you think, sorry, Gary. So, um, so do you think this is more a, a, a you know, the, the, the blame maybe lies, I suppose that they put a lot of blame with the feet of FIFA to be fair, but you know, is this a, is this the sort of the world governing body not doing enough to protect football within you know one of its continents yeah i mean fifa obviously doesn't do enough but i think this once again goes back to just i mean you you really cannot separate football from just the colonial exploitation of africa since we've started to since europeans have been in africa yeah i mean it's the same structures it's the same economic issues these are all connected yeah, I guess the the other issue, and uh, I'm not sure how how the uh, the uh, financial situation works, but it strikes me that the massive, the overwhelming financial benefit will accrue to the uh, to the, the the first world country rather than than, than Africa. Any fee paid for transfer will be at the 19 year old stage would be fairly miserable compared to the potential value they could accumulate afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned academy. So um, let's let's. If we can talk a little bit in particular about academies, and I know you sort of mentioned when we were talking pre- uh, the, the pod about um, Qatar's Aspire Academy. So can, for people who are not aware, can you give us a little bit of background around that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, I mean, Qatar's Aspire Academy is a project um, that Qatar started on about a few years ago to actually more, way more than a few years ago to bring in African players. Um, at a young age, have them developed in Qatar, and eventually naturalize them as citizens. Um, it's extremely illegal. Yeah. Didn't Qatar win the um, the uh, Asian Cup recently? Was there a number of, of those these players involved in that team? Would you know? I mean, I don't know. I understand it. Just instruct me as you were saying that then. No, actually, I don't know. I, that's a really good question. That. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, I mean, they, they, were, they were fairly um, unfancied. And uh, they didn't have a, a great deal of history of success in that um, competition. But so I mean, it might well be the case that they're and perhaps it's something that we can, I might take a look at after we've finished. <clears throat> there's a, there's a, you mentioned words about FIFA earlier. I think there's a particular article in their uh, constitution, uh, Article 19, that's supposed to deal with these sort of things. Perhaps it's more in the um, in the discussion than in the reality. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that as a Chelsea fan, you know all about Article 19. <laughs> I'm fully confident we will be cleared of all the charges and we'll be given apologies and a box of chocolates. I, just, I had to throw it in there. Ah, oh, it's okay. I'm used to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
The pictures, can you explain to, to the listeners what Article 19 means, what, it, what it's supposed to do? Yeah, so what Article 19 is supposed to do is um, protect youth players from being transferred abroad for the purpose of just protecting them and allowing them to grow and develop um, as people, because obviously it's not a very good thing for young teenagers to be transferred away from their parents and all these things. Um, and by and large, FIFA, I mean, it kind of, they kind of enforce it, they kind of don't. Um, but in this Qatar case, there's just absolutely no even semblance of caring or even pretending to um, do anything about these players being brought in. And, I mean, at a, for a long time, a lot of these Qatari scouts and a lot of, they were hiring a lot of these people that were just going into Africa and looking for really young kids. I mean, I think the one of the qualifications was we can't bring players in over the age of 13. So they're going to find young, like, kids and teenagers and trying to develop them in Qatar. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's important that we mentioned we should state here that we're not suggesting that uh, anybody from Qatar's Spire Academy or anybody else is breaking a particular law. We're just examining the sort of situation as we understand it. Um, it's probably worth mentioning that as we go along. So, let's do. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how we've not been sued yet, Gary. The way the, the way we carry on. Um, well, lawyers don't, lawyers don't listen to us. That's it. To be fair, that that's probably it. It's a good job, to be fair. Um, it, it, you know, it's really interesting what you say. I mean, especially the, you know, the the, the blatant disregard for you know, as, you know, as you call it, Article 19, and it's almost. It's almost brazen in the way in the way these things these things are done and the way this this process is you know is carried out and I suppose like like we said you know we look at FIFA and and their sort of moral obligation I know we've we've um, we've touched on FIFA at the end of series one didn't we get out oh, end of series one yes. beginning of this one yeah we looked we looked at FIFA and, and we looked at um, you know FIFA's almost. Not turning a blind eye, but almost if, if it suits their need or their political gain or their their development, then they're quite happy to, you know, to turn a blind eye as such. And and I suppose you wonder really where where this this practice, this code of practice, will end. You know, if we're talking about players, you know, thirteen years old, you know, where where will it end? Where will it? You know, is does it just do the barriers just keep getting pushed? Do the you know the, the rules just keep getting Become more and more blurred um, between between sort of the two parties who are trying to, if you like, develop develop these footballers. But I suppose, unfortunately, when all when all said and done, you know, this this comes down to money, and, it, and it's always going to come down to money. If you have a a, a potentially poor or poorer um, continent or a poorer football infrastructure, money will always be. The motivating factor, regardless of what the the moral ethics of it are, unfortunately, there will always money will always talk. Um, and so, my because I've just been making some notes as we've been chatting here. And again, you know, Ryan might might know this better, but it's is has there ever been a what am I trying to say here? This you know, if football or if FIFA are really a really interested in developing football in Africa, what about bringing development centres into Africa. So, you know, is the potential for clubs, I mean, I don't know, someone like Manchester City, for example, um, you know, is there a potential there for maybe them to bring um, almost like a, 
a satellite academy, if you like, into into Africa, where maybe these these potential African talent could be harnessed and developed at least within their own continent. Obviously, you, you, you know, you couldn't have them all in you know in every single African nation, but maybe if you could have them, you know, just one within the continent, whereby at least some of these young players could stay within the continent longer, if you like. Um, but I don't know, Ryan. I don't know what you think. Whether that's potential or whether the European clubs just want to bring them across and and away. I mean, I think that that's the exact problem. Is if a club like Manchester City goes to Africa, builds an academy in Africa, keeps these kids in Africa, and then holds their rights. That's that's the issue for me. I think that what FIFA needs to be doing is really doing a lot with the structural at the structural level of these clubs, where the academies aren't producing players for Manchester City they're producing players for African clubs but but is that is that realistically ever going to happen that's that's a good question but it's realistically never going to happen now um, because there's just so much of financial benefit for these investors and these clubs to come in um, I mean there have to have to be a drastic series of changes you'd have to um, I mean, you'd have to you'd have to do so many. There's so many like problems um, just with what is in place now with the academies. There's pr- for profit and private academies. Um, these academies aren't really holistic centers for education. They're all about um, imp- they're all about just producing players. So this is not going to happen. But we can I can I don't know. We can hope. Yeah, I I, I agree. Mor- morally, you, you're absolutely right. Morally, there should be, and ethically, you know, these this development of African footballers should be for the benefit of Africa and African clubs. I I fully fully agree and, and fully support that. Um, I just it, it, it is there are, it, there are things that we can do though. Okay. And for one, um, for profit academies, where um, for profit academies can just they FIFA can get rid of those okay um and then i think fifa can do a lot more with kind of restricting access to foreign clubs coming in and taking over african academies okay um but it's wild to think that is we we think that yes it's a money issue but this is also happening in the united states which is the richest country in the world i mean Bayern has academies here um it's there, there are there are things that i don't know that's why I don't know if it's necessarily completely economic based, economically based. I'd see that's an interesting one because I was just I think I was going along. We've done um, I don't know when we've done these a dozen or so of perhaps a bit more than that of these uh, pods now. And uh, one of the questions that tends to crop up is that uh, what type of politics is involved? Is it, is it financial? Is it, is it power politics? Is it personal politics? Is it uh, just a matter of control? And this is almost definitely defined in a box sealed and tied with a ribbon. This is all about about finance and money. And but you, you said it's not necessarily about about finance. So I'm I'm just looking at what, what aspects aren't of this aren't money related. Uh, I mean, obviously everything definitely um, ha- is like re- is related to money. But I think one of the maybe kind of a, a line we could draw is we think about um, so when we think about Article 19 and we think about some of the illegal transfers that have happened from of the bigger clubs I mean Barcelona were in trouble for signing a South Korean player and that one was one that got them flagged down but 
they're not really celebrating this transfer, whereas I mean, when um, Qatar was doing this Right to Dream Academy, they were literally like marketing this as we're giving these players a way out of the continent. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I when you when you do that and when it becomes a way out, um, it pretty much reduces Africa to a subjected role, which yeah. I think there's not sometimes that's a little racially based rather than um, purely about the money. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely a fair comment. Absolutely a fair comment. Um, I just want to just to draw your attention to uh, an example of one of the you mentioned one of these four prop, these profit four profit academies in uh, in Africa. And there's, uh, there's one in Ivory Coast, I believe. Uh, is it Mimos? Mimos? Yeah, the Mimos Sifcom Academy. Yeah, so can you just tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that and uh, how that sort of fits into that sort of um, profile that you described earlier? Yeah, so it's not so much, I don't know if it's necessarily a for-profit academy, um, but it's definitely an academy built to sell players rather than to produce players for the domestic team. Um, and it's definitely, I mean, it's a fantastic academy. It's produced Abue, uh, Salman Kalu, Bubakar Berry, Kolo, and Yaya Torre. Um, but when you look at the way this academy is run, uh, one of the first things that they do is, when, when they're built, is they um, kind of built all these relationships with European clubs and with scouts. And that definitely takes away from the purpose of an academy. I mean, you'd yeah. think the purpose of an academy would be to develop these players, but when you build it right away and then your first order of business instead of developing players is producing relationships with clubs, there's definitely something wrong there. Yeah, I guess it almost has the, the feel of a factory about just need to know you put, putting the raw material in one end and getting the, a sellable product out the other. Yeah, which is just African colonialism in a nutshell. Yeah, well, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Stu? Yeah, it's funny, um, just listening there to that one, um, and obviously you mentioned uh, Didier Drogba earlier, yeah. Gary, and I, I was I wanted to ask Ryan, in terms of, of established African footballers, and you know, like you said, we can name, you know, we, we can name we can name plenty of them, but certainly someone like Didier Drogba, who to me comes across as very, um, not so much political, but very much about you know, where he comes from, he's very, you know, he's, he's all about giving back to the community, he's all about giving back to his, you know, his nation of birth, and I'm wondering, what, what do the, the established, you know, the players who've been there and done it, the players who are coming, come to the end, or coming to the end of their career, how, you know, what are they doing in terms of supporting this retainment of African talent? You know, I, I don't, I don't know enough about that, um, I, I know, I'm sure, I think Drogba was involved in building an academy in Africa, and I think a lot of these players are involved in trying to make um, academies more holistic and more about education and building player and building people rather than players, but when you have just individuals coming in to do this, you're not going to be able to achieve anything on a structural basis. You're just going to be able to help a few more players out. No. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. So, cool, so, sorry. No, all, all I was going to say was I'm I'm just wondering whether the the, the voice of you know like Gary said you know we've, we've done a loads of these now you know we often talk about you know political footballers and which, you know which ones have a political voice and you know do they are they tended to be listened to you know perhaps more than a than a, a politician if you like or certainly a, a FIFA delegate and I just wondered whether the weight of support. Of someone like Didier Drogba would maybe have more more impact and more effect. Um, I suppose is, is is all I was wondering really. 
I'm sure it would help, but Didier Drogba is also one of the players that was produced through one of these academies. So I think to really have a player that would be able to kind of exploit the structural flaws, you'd need a player that didn't make it through one of these academies, but that would never happen. Yeah. I guess there's not there's nobody sort of more um, more uh, uh, zealous than, than somebody who's been through his experience and, and saw the, the flaws. But, I mean, Didier Drogba is a good example of political um, influence in uh, football in Africa. So, uh, he and, his, and the team, they, the national team, helped to um, bring an end to the civil war in, in Cote d'Ivoire. And obviously got people like George Weah, um, who'd become mm-hmm. prime minister of, of his country, or prime minister or president. I'm not sure, but, but certainly uh, succeeded uh, politically there. Um, so I think there is, there is sort of a, a, a potential there for uh, players to become famous to perhaps have a, a potential beneficial effect. But the one question I was going to ask you about, particularly with regard to the academies um, uh, in Africa, do they have any beneficial effect on the, the game domestically in Africa? So I know players are produced for, um, and sold to European clubs, but do they also benefit um, domestic African football, would you know? I mean, I, I don't know how much. I mean, they, they do, a lot of these players are produced, and a lot of them become, like, African domestic players, and they play in continental competition. Um, and that's obviously beneficial. And then, I mean, just having players like Drogba and Gervinho and Abue on an international stage is a massive source of pride for the country and I'm sure it inspires a lot of young players. So these things do good and that's not, the point isn't that they necessarily uh, aren't good things, it's just that um, they're, they're producing individuals rather than really doing anything on a structural level to change African football. Sure, yeah, it, it, I'm really sorry, Ryan. I just seem to have loads of questions. I, I, I feel your, your indignance at, at what's happening, and I'm, I fully agree, and I'm fully supporting it. I'm, I'm kind of trying to think of ways that I can change it. Although I'm, I'm not sure how successful I'm going to be. But again, if I suppose you know African, because obviously you know if we look at South America and we look at you know again young talent coming over to Europe from South America. I'm fully aware that, you know, South Africa is a far more established um, footballing continent and, you know, and has a very strong domestic league and a very strong um, setup and is very well supported by FIFA. But I suppose if, if in, what I'm asking here is if African, if domestic African football was better, was had more investment, was stronger. Do you think the players would be more inclined to play, or are you almost fighting a, a battle? That actually, young African footballers don't really want you to fight. I mean, I it's pretty much um, yeah. If you incentivize African football, no one's no one's not going to want to play for their hometown team. I think the issue is that we use Africa, uh, um, when football at least, like reduces Africa to a subjective role where the dream isn't to grow up and play for your home club. It's to grow up and play for Real Madrid, and that's fine. But I think that the way that these academies are set up isn't to produce players for the first team, and that's the number, the major issue for me. Yeah. I just, I just want to uh, sort of... Um... <clears throat> Give you, give you sort of a, a, a comparative uh, um, scenario here. So, is mm-hmm. there that much difference between um, academies tapping into African talent than academies tapping into 
the poorer regions of South America, towns of South America, or the poorer regions of, of Europe, for that matter, as well. Um, is it just a case of general exploitation? And Africa is just an example of what's going on across the, the globe in the gripes to a lesser extent in different areas as well. Yeah, I mean, these things are happening all over the world. I mean, even you look at the U.S., Tyler Adams was sold for $3 million. Now he's starting for RB Leipzig. I mean, yeah. this, these teams are able to do this because this is a weaker area. I mean, and the financial incentives aren't as strong here. So smart clubs are going to do that. I think the issue is that there is no established base in Africa um, for this to even really be improving these domestic clubs. I mean, and when a European club comes into South America and buys a young player who's been playing in front of 60,000 fans, then that money goes into the club. The club uses that money to develop more players. It helps South American football. When a club like Manchester City goes into Africa, buys a player for um, nothing, um, and then brings him over to their academy, that fee doesn't necessarily help the African first team. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Does that make it's sense? It's absolutely, it does, yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, mean I, I agree that that is exactly the, the situation, but I just wanted to sort of tease out the difference between um, the structural chart, the structural setup in uh, these academies in Africa as to other parts of the world, but you, you, you sort of you put that out nicely. Steve? Yeah. Again, looking at it from a, a political point of view, I mean, we look at, you know, the the president of the you know the African Football Federation and I mean how much you know how vocal how vocal are they in terms of repelling um, sort of the advances of of UEFA um, and clubs you know within the U, within UEFA because it's almost a, a co it seems to me like a conflict of confederations here you have a, a very strong well established confederation whose clubs are like you say coming along and almost just stealing if you like from a from another confederation but it. But I wonder, from a almost like a political sense, um, you know, what what the president of the African Football Federation is actually doing in order to either try and stop this or to at least engage in some sort of improved recompense or try and you know create you know look at your way for and I suppose ask them for a little bit more support in terms of developing football within within their federation. Yeah, I mean, I. I don't exactly know. It's a lot of a lot of that isn't like really open information on what um, these African leaders are doing. But I think just kind of one of one of the I, I don't know. I think it's uh, it's tough because a lot of these African um, like federation presidents see these players doing well on a global stage and think that this is the end game. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess you know we, we sort of touched on this earlier. I think Stu mentioned this that the the only way this could possibly be ended is by FIFA acting, and um, so I, and you might know the answer, but I'll just I'll be interested in your opinion on this. So, um, if FIFA had the will to end to end this to change this, um, could they? And if they could, why won't they? It's it's tough. I mean, we talked about this um, a little bit earlier. And FIFA don't really have an incentive. I mean, a lot of, I mean, I'm sure a lot of these investors and these academies are tied up within FIFA, and they don't. There's really not much incentive for FIFA to really do anything to improve the African continental game. Um, 
I mean, the only way for it really to happen would be to get rid of a lot of these private academies, um, maybe do a little bit more to protect African youth players, but it's definitely going to take a cultural shift towards um, African youth players recognizing that um, to get rid of this notion that you can't find success in the continent. Yeah. If that makes sense. And this is something, this is something that the United States is going through right now as well. Yeah. Um, And you've seen the massive shift to a lot of these players, like, really becoming involved in their clubs and wanting to become homegrown players rather than leaving at the first sign. So it's definitely possible. It's just going to be a lot harder because we've seen how hard it is in the U.S. and soccer's so ingrained in the culture. It's such a big money, a big money business and it's taken so long. So to do it in Africa would be a lot harder. Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned about um, players, young African players don't want to necessarily play for the local clubs. They want to play for Real Madrid or whatever. And uh, uh, a couple of episodes ago, Stu and I were talking to Uri Levy, and we talked about Egypt. And the, the, he was saying there, the players there, um, it's a, he described his football for dreamers because all the players there dream of getting the big move to continental Europe and playing for Real Madrid, AC Milan, uh, Lazio, Bayern Munich, or wherever the big, the big clubs are. And a lot of players in, 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 in Egypt have even adopted um, uh, nicknames, sort of Europeanized nicknames, Famous players like there's a guy called Trezeguet, uh, mm-hmm. there's a guy I remember called, him. <laughs> called, yeah, the guy called Medved. Uh, so they've got these nicknames almost as, as a, a sort of a, a tag to the European game. So it absolutely meshes it with precisely what you described earlier that the, the players in Africa, the dream is to play for the big European. And I suppose, you know, from their point of view, it's where the money is, and that's you know, that's where we all go to work in the final analysis. Yeah, I mean, it makes complete sense. We all want to play for the biggest clubs and be the best. Yeah, Yeah, it, it's funny because obviously when, when you talk about America, I think I think where the disadvantage lies for Africa, and certainly you'll definitely know better than I do in this, right? And obviously America has its, you know, it, it, its four main sports, um, whereas... You know, I suppose in Africa, you know, football football is the is the number one sport, and it, it you know it is the one the one route out, isn't it? It's the one sport where a lot of money can be made for an individual or for their family or or, or for whoever it is. You know, America, <clears throat> from, certainly from from my perspective, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but football seems to be very much. Um, you know, in the minority when you compare it with baseball, basketball, hockey, and um, the NFL, and, and I just wonder whether America—I suppose I'm asking you, Ryan—whether America is quite so concerned of the asset stripping in football than if it would be if it was their baseball players or their NFL players or their basketball players. Yeah, I mean, this would—if um, LeBron James was being scouted by Real—if Real—if Real Madrid tried to bring LeBron James in in his prime, there would be massive uproar here. Because, um, because as well, I would assume that. I suppose if we use the Lakers then for 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 our example, I suppose the Lakers can almost cherry pick the very best basketballers Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, or, or wherever they may lie, and bring mm-hmm. them across to the NBA, which is almost what we're talking about here, but in reverse, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's true. Um, and I just, I just think that for Africa, it, it, it's very much, it doesn't have that. It, it doesn't have anything else. You know, it, it is football. Everything for them is all about football. The way out 
you know, it is through football. There is there is no other no other route in terms of professional sport that can bring the riches and the rewards that football can. So, you know, mm-hmm. you, you are fighting against against that as well, aren't you? With you know, with the idea of trying to morally trying to make this better, trying to you know protect these young players from. I suppose from the, the hands of of European clubs, but when it when it is the only option for them, it, it makes that struggle even harder. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. It's it's interesting. Though, um, I'm dotting dotting a, a Marxist hat for a, for a few seconds. <laughs> but we, you know, the capitalist system is all about exploitation. You know, profit is, ex- is defined as exploitation. It's the difference between the cost and the and the and the sell. Um, and I guess in a capitalist system. The, the this this process we describe in this uh, structural um, situation of the academies, the European academies taking African talent or talent from anywhere, it doesn't really matter what we're talking about Africa particularly now, is just a natural byproduct of the capitalist system. And football is is less a sport than a business now, no matter how much we might want to argue to the to the country or believe to the country or hope to the country. That's that's almost certainly true now. And I think it's it's, it's probably just something we need to uh, understand that it's going to be, as you said, Ryan, very difficult for FIFA to change those things because that's just the way of the world in the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. And yeah. a major tenant of the capitalist system is um, unfair colonial system, economic systems. So, yeah, just domination, exploitation. Exactly. So this is, once again, what's, what it all comes back to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's again. I don't keep coming back to past, past examples, but I I mean, it's funny because Stephen and I, you know, talked about. You know, we discussed FIFA and we talked about how when Havelange was. Elected as FIFA president, you know, Stanley Rouse, and the whole the whole shift for FIFA in '74 came about through Stanley Rouse. Um, you know, the, the the English president of FIFA at the time was very much of colonial mindset. He was very much that Africa was was very grateful for everything that that Stanley Rouse had had given to them through FIFA. Whereas Havelange was very was a lot more politically astute and saw with the one member one vote system that actually if he could harness the African votes, if he could improve the the experience of African football, um, then he would be able to, you know, to take those votes and would be able to become FIFA president, which he did, you know, for a long period and and to a very successful end and was was FIFA president for 24 years and was consistently supported by the African continent because of what he promised them, extra places at the World Cup, Um, you know, competition, it would introduce new competitions, but these competitions would be held on the the African continent. So so a lot of of promise was made by FIFA um, through Havelange and again through Blatter as well. Um, because of the the African potential with its fifty odd member states to be able to almost elect a president, but it it seems to me that again you know the the president promises a lot and and delivers little if if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean it definitely makes sense. You know, um, I mean, sorry, go on, Ryan. Yeah, no, yeah, I, that totally makes sense. Um, I'm just thinking kind of of an example right now uh, and I know I keep bringing this back to American soccer because um, that's where my background is but you look at kind of where American soccer was 10 years ago and we other like the kind of the global game wasn't necessarily um, too interested in American investment and doing all this um, and then 
now look at what all these kind of academies have produced by once like they've kind of incentivized producing their own players rather than European clubs producing it. And all these fantastic young American players are now being produced by academies um, because we've incentivized development here. Whereas in Africa, I, th I think that's something that FIFA could do. If FIFA really prioritized African academies, um, they'd, be, they'd, be, they'd be producing so many more players than kind of just the few that slip through. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if you look at the size of, you know, the, co the content of Africa, that there is, there must be so much untapped potential. But, but like you say, Ren, you know the minute that that potential is in unearthed or you find that, that player who just elevates themselves just above the norm, mm -hmm. they're going to they're gonna go, they're going to be gone, you know, or, or almost instantly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and there's no incentive to really create a strong Africa because it's just going to make players more expensive. Yeah. Can I ask you an impossible question, uh, Ryan? <laughs> Go for Do it. it. <laughs> Do it, Gary. Do it. Many years ago, I say many years ago, probably the best part of 25 years ago now, Pelé said that an African country would win the World Cup before the turn of the century. No, they haven't. But African football national and in the international stage has moved on a bit. So... Would you say that uh, this situation of uh, the European academies developing or exploiting, depending on which side of the line you sit, uh, uh, African talent, has made that more or less likely? Um, can, you, can you repeat that one more time? Yeah, so... so can you give me more time to think about it? <laughs> no, well, OK, yeah, so... I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll rephrase it, so... So, basically... Okay. Um, you know, we talk about players being developed and, and potentially improved or exploited to be improved, but is there a benefit for African football on the international stage is, is basically the genus of the question I'm looking at. Um, so because they're, they're making players, they're producing better African players, do African countries, uh, have they got a better chance to excel in the world stage? So, for instance, let's give some examples. So, Ghana did well in the uh, South African World Cup. Uh, Cote d'Ivoire have been... Uh, quite uh, quite strong in in international tournaments as well. So, is it less? Uh, it, does this academy system make it more or less likely that African national sides, so be Cote d'Ivoire, Nigeria, Ghana, or South Africa, or whoever, or, or in North in North Africa, Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, is it likely to make them stronger or or weaker? Would you say? Yeah, I mean, it definitely. The more players you're producing and the more players that you're investing in, it's going to help the national team. Um, but I think once again, you're doing 5% of what could actually be done. That's exactly the point I'm making. So, so it, 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 although it, you, this is what I thought you were going to say, so it is doing some good, but a different system would do so much more, so much more good on, on the whole. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and so, yeah. just like use this little bit of potential and see like how much it could be rather than looking at it and saying, wow, like, we're really happy we have that. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. On, on the face of it, as we mentioned earlier, that, uh, you know, we could all mention a, a, a dozen, 15, 20 top, top-notch African players and say, yeah, African players doing really well. But that's the exception. It's not the rule. And there's so much talent there that isn't being t uh, uh, developed because of the concentration that, that where they can make the money by selling on these, these small number of players through these academies. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you said. Stu? Yeah, it's funny. Um, Ryan mentioned earlier about how it's not 
you know, an African player's dream to play for their hometown team, perhaps so much as it, you know, as it is to go and play for Real Madrid. And I suppose you you get the impression that maybe you know African African footballers actually. Their, their dream is to represent their nation at a World Cup and, you know, and put it on a world stage. So you know, it, it's almost like that that hometown represent representation stage is completely missed out, and it goes from these academies to coming back and and representing their nation. You know, the World Cup or the African Cup of Nations. You know, and and it, it's like club foot that club football level with Africa is actually just missed out, and maybe that's why. You know, you only have this this select handful um, of actual players, rather than um, what what should be in theory. You know, if, if we use America as the example with two hundred odd million um, mm-hmm. population, but yet the, they're competing against four other major sports in Africa. The population is whatever the population is, but it's all about one sport. And you're right through through the just the sheer mathematics of it all. There should be so many more better players than than there actually is. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly it. Um, but it, yeah, it, it just seems to me that you know African footballers seem to almost prize coming back home. You know, you look at Mo Salah for you know for Egypt, that coming mm-hmm. back home to Egypt, not coming back home to the hometown club or the town where they were, but it's almost coming back home to a country and the whole country gets behind these players rather than, you know, rather than the home team. And, and it seems to be that, I'm not saying that, that seems to be what Africa has settled for, but that it, it's almost like, I suppose, a compromise, if you like, whereby, mm-hmm. and certainly the, you know, the, the Ivory Coast, you know, is another great example, you know, produced a lot of talented footballers who are very much celebrated you know, at the you know the African Cup of Nations or the World Cup, and it it's it just seems to be more of a a collective um, thing rather than a a provincial hometown pride within within each individual country. Yeah, I mean, I think one, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And to get that kind of um, you just need you you they need to really in like incentivize the African club game. I guess the problem, the problem there, though, is uh, is what 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 Stu's just accurately accurately described is what the system allows, is what the system produces, what the system mm-hmm. dictates, um, and the only way to change that is for, um, as you say, incentivise the uh, success of the African clubs, which requires money, and the ability to compete with top European clubs is 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 like I suppose, you know, a non-league club trying to, to compete with Manchester United. The money just isn't there. And uh, I, I, I saw a thing in, in the um, in the news. I think it was this week. Might have been the last week. That um, I, I, I'm still not convinced. I'm not sure that it wasn't a, a kind of hype, a, a joke, a picture of a, 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 a team lineup of supposedly the Manchester City under fives academy team. Now, now I, mean, I saw I'm, that. <laughs> I, I'm still not sure it's true. No, perhaps it is, or perhaps it isn't. I don't know, but. I mean, talk about taking kids early. I mean, you were saying about, you know, uh, the, the average age of African transfers is 19. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I've a bit of coaching. I don't know how you could possibly know the talent of a kid under five. Who am I, Man City? You know, far more than I do about that sort of thing. But, 
if that if that isn't sort of um, you know catching them early, I mean they'll be they'll be signing fetuses soon. I mean it's just we it's just, we do that in the U.S. too. <laughs> under fives. Uh, we there's develop yeah I mean not like obviously don't sign into a team I think the teams start at seven but yeah there's programs where we have I mean I work for the Rapids um, which is the pro team in Denver and we have programs for four year olds. Well, well, and it's definitely with an eye to getting them into the system. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, okay. it's it's ridiculous, but this, yeah. it, when I saw that, it's not really that surprising. Um, yeah. I think the surprising thing is that maybe there's they're competing together as a team. That is surprising. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure every club has systems in place for. Well, I mean, get, get, getting kids involved at the club is one thing. I mean, getting them involved and playing and coming, turn up and enjoying playing and just, you know, yeah. seeing how they go is one thing. But having a, a, a you know, a, a, and perhaps this isn't, and perhaps I've just sort of taken it on the wrong uh, hook, and if I have, I apologise, but to have a, 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 an academy under five teams, well, well I mean... It's, it's, it's a little ridiculous. It, it just, it, it, it feels it. I mean, I don't know if it is, but, it, you know, from a... From somebody of my age and generation, it just feels a little bit out there somewhere. I'm not sure where, but it's, it's somewhere out there. That's still... <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm with you, Gary. But it, it must be a it must be a generational thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. I I, I I can't even begin to imagine. But I love football. I've played it all my life. I can't even begin to imagine myself in any form of structured environment at five years old. Um, oh, it's kids chaos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, just one thing, Ryan, and again, we just seem to be asking you impossible questions. I am really sorry. Um, oh, no, I'm but, very much enjoying this. So. But, um, in terms of, you know, we talk about these young players at 19, and I suppose two things, really. One is how much responsibility do, do clubs take for you know the players' welfare when they bring them over, you know how much support is there is our additional family members brought across? Is you know what what support is in place for those for those very young African footballers? And I suppose my second question is is the return rate or the failure rate or the dropout rate of players who don't make it, can't cope, homesickness, and are just returned. I suppose back to where they were, if you like. And I suppose I'm just interested in how much care. That the European clubs take of these, you know, very valuable but also very delicate um, sort of, you know, players that they're, you know, assets that, that that they're bringing across. And it's awful to talk about a human being as an asset. I am aware of that, but essentially that's what they are. But I just wonder how much care the club take of them, and you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, what's in place, you know, sort of, I suppose, when they return back to, you know, back home. Yeah, I mean, this is actually this is a, a very serious issue, um, and it's one thing to have these systems in place um, in clubs like Barcelona and Manchester City, where these players obviously um, are taken care of, and they realize that these players are investments. But I think, I mean, you can go read hundreds of articles online about some of these small Ukrainian teams, Lithuanian, Latvian, um, like it's a lot of these kind of smaller clubs that really just bring these players over and do nothing to take care of them. Um, so you're putting African players in apartment buildings at 18, some, sometimes without their parents, um, actually mo- a lot of the time without their parents, and you're setting these players up to fail. And this happens so frequently, and it's a real, there is a real issue with trafficking um, in player trafficking. Yeah, that's frightening. Yeah, I mean, I can even give an example. I grew up playing in Chicago, and 
the Chicago Fire Academy brought in five African players that were teenagers and put them in an apartment, and one of them was shot and killed. And this this happens all over the world. Yeah. It, yeah. it is, like I say, it, I was, you know, we, like I say, we, you know, we've talked about this asset stripping and the ethics and the, you know, the morals behind it, but, you know, it, if European clubs are going to go and do this, you know, there has to be that moral responsibility to then look after for as long as they are with you. And even, you know, sort of, the, you know, the return journey, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't make it, or God forbid there's an injury or whatever it is, yeah. there's still that moral responsibility to return this player, but also return them, you know, in a way where, you know, they can continue with their lives, continue hopefully with their career or, or, or whatever it is as well. And like I suppose, like you say, you... you you know, we're sat here talking about it, and certainly for me, you know, you think Real Madrid, Ajax, Manchester City, and you're right, you know, there's teams in the Ukraine, Lithuania, and Gary also made a great point that actually it's the sell-on fee where the real money is made, and I suppose mm -hmm. an Eastern European club is like is more than happy to take a gamble on the off chance that they find the next 20, 25 million pound player, and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so it goes on. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the, the point of this is if you have to view a person as an asset, you should not be bringing that person, that player to your team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a sobering thought, and, uh, yeah. Um, as always, Tom's in with us on, uh, on on our podcasts, and uh, always like to close the same question, Ryan, and uh, it's a little bit sort of... Um, uh, it doesn't quite fit with this subject, but I'm going to ask it anyway and perhaps give you sort of a, uh, an idea of how I'd like to approach answering it. So, so I always say that can football exist in a political vacuum or does the passion engendered by the game too easily lend itself to being a political tool? Is the political football inevitable? So with regards to the, um, uh, this subject, with regards to the history, colonialism, etc., um, does, does an emerging African football scene... Uh, uh, Offer a potential change. Welcome voting would be to be a way to make the situation change, or is the history locking um, African players and their uh, presence in academies into an exploitative relationship? I mean, until the um, exploitative capitalist system in place and the world economy changes, this is never going to change. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. Marxism, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're right. I mean, that's been that's been a brilliant discussion, uh, Ryan. I mean, it's it very different from the ones we've done in ge geographical areas. And to look at this as a different um, a different uh, way of, of examining politics and football uh, was a little refreshing. One of this, well, I wanted to have this as the sort of um, the, the the finale of uh, of series two. So, so massive thanks for coming on and uh, and sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, any final thoughts to um, to to Roy instead? Yeah. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I was taking a breath in. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it it's been great in that it it seems to be a you know it was a real it's a topic that covers old world colonial problems in a very new twenty first century capitalist way. It's a real um, juxtaposition, if you like, of 
of, of two worlds that are actually colliding and unfortunately the the victims if you like are these young you know impressionable footballers and until you engage in discussion like this and you really sit down for an hour and chat with you know with other people about it really it's only cursory thoughts that are ever given to this subject when actually there's a massive underlying problem here that you know I'm sure you know, people are well aware of, and that people are, you know, more aware of certainly than I am. But it, it, it's it's something that obviously needs more open discussion and needs needs to be looked at, if you like, even if it's just to protect these players that are coming across. Um, but it's it, it as always, it absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating um, to listen to you, Ryan. Yeah. Yes, I thank you, Ryan. Thanks, great. Okay, so uh, as mentioned, uh, this episode brings series two of the political football to a close, and uh, once more we've had an absolute ball producing them, and uh, I'm hoping you've, you've listened to them and enjoyed them too. The good news, however, well, we hope it's good news anyway, is that uh, series three is already being planned, and uh, not too far down the road, we'll be back uh, filling your lug holes with all things political and football related. Um, we'd like to thank all of our guests across both series so far. Simply couldn't produce the podcast without them. It's been an absolute joy sitting back and listening to these guys educate and entertain both Stu and myself with their knowledge and enthusiasm for the game we all love. So big thanks, of course, obviously to all our listeners. Without you, we'd just be sitting here in a darkened room and talking to ourselves, <laughs> and there's no fun in that. So we, we hope you've enjoyed the pods as much as we have. Um, also, I'd like to offer a monumental thanks to Stu, who's co-hosted these first two series with me, and uh, uh, happily has agreed to stay on board for the next series as well. Um, as well as being my co-host, Stu also looks after all the electronic whirly gigs and jiggery power cream, techno, <laughs> the techno dinosaurs fun, what they find impossible, so massive thanks to you, Stu. Uh, well, like I say, I think it's more by luck than, than good management, Gary, but... Um... More than happy to take care of the technical side, even if it's just to um, j- jump in and have a have a school day every Sunday night on subjects <laughs> that I actually really like, rather than the ones I did at school. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I should mention at this stage as well that um, in not too distant future, still be launching uh, a series of his own alongside um, Steve's Craig, looking at uh, uh, people's favourite uh, teams over various years and uh, and ha- just. Talking about their, it's called my side. I think it's called my side too. Is it listen to my yeah, side. Yeah, listen. Yeah, listen to my side. Um, is it is its working title at the moment? But it, it seems to be sticking at the moment. But only for the want of I can't think of anything better yet. But yeah, yeah. listen to my side. Just um, it, it's just you know guests coming on and talking about their most favourite side you know the one that evokes the most memories the one that is a real sort of distillation if you like of why they they love the game and it's you know it's just getting them to come on and if it's a club side it's over a single season if it's an international side it's you know it's over one particular tournament and it's a real sort of in-depth look and discussion about that particular side and why it evokes you know so many memories (coughs) sorry um for the guest yeah, that sounds great, and uh, you know, with yourself and uh, Steve hosting that, that's going to be uh, guarantee- a guaranteed win. And I'll uh, I'll look forward to being invited and coming as a guest and uh, talking about my favourite team. And uh, it looks like a winner, Stu. And uh, you know, best luck with that, buddy. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, so uh, so thanks for listening. Um, as I said, this uh, this winds up series two, and uh, we'll be setting to work over the next few weeks at lining up series three. So I uh, hope you'll join us again then. So. Uh, For the time being, uh, thank you and goodbye from The Political Football. 
Many thanks for joining us today on The Lob, a These Football Times production. For more of our content, check out our award-winning print magazine featuring some of the game's foremost writers, artists and photographers exploring areas of the game rarely covered in high-end print. For now, we look forward to you joining us again soon. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.